Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. When I'm here, the friction goes away. English class is the one place where I feel like I'm in orbit. I'm in space. I'm like a fish in water. As I put down my own thoughts and ideas, everything slows down for me. I feel things. I just get it. As a student, Chad Sanders often felt like a fish out of water, except in one magical creative classroom, where he found a sense of belonging and flow. As he starts climbing the corporate ladder, though, that fish out of water feeling comes back in force. He sees the hierarchies and ingrown systems around him adding friction to every step he takes. He realizes he needs to do something bold to regain the pure creativity, the curiosity, that lets him walk without friction and unabashedly be himself. In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories, breathtaking music, and mindfulness prompts so that we may see our lives reflected back to us in other people's stories. And that can lead to improvements in our own inner lives. From Wait What, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan, and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed. The body breathing. Your senses open. Your mind open. Meeting the world. The sun's out. The sky's blue. Small white clouds sit in the sky like they're up there smiling over Brooklyn. And I'm smiling too. I'm taking a three-block walk with my new mentor, film director Spike Lee. 
all over the Fort Greene promenade, people recognize him. It's the Yankees cap, the trim beard, Jordan's on his feet, thick framed glasses, the bracelets, the earrings adorning his ears and wrists. It's Spike. People say hi as he passes. Some people wave. He gives them the time of day. But he's walking. Spike leans forward like he has a fish hook in his forehead. It's like he's being pulled by something. He walks like this everywhere. It's his walk. He moves with authority. He moves like he's ordained to say, this is how it goes. Spike is all wiry and coiled like a cricket. He's 60-ish. I'm only 28, but I have a hard time keeping up with his pace. He doesn't seem to feel the urge to make sure everybody's comfortable or that he's not going too fast. It's clear. He's going to get where he's going as quickly as possible on his own two feet. Anybody who can't keep up, anybody who's in the way, be damned. With every step that Spike takes, he seems to melt away any friction. I watch closely how he's just so clearly, unabashedly himself. We take a left and another quick left. We're scouting an arresting church for his new movie. Well, he's scouting. I'm learning how to scout. He's looking for locations for the movie that he'll shoot in a few months. That screenplay is the first Spike gives me to read. As we turn onto the tree-lined street, the brown stone tower looms overhead. The structure feels ancient, like it's been here since before the Dutch landed. From the outside, I can just make out the figures on the stained glass. Jesus on the cross, Mary with her baby. My mind drifts back to the ninth grade, a time when I was anyone but myself. The private school I'm attending in Washington, D.C. has a full-on chapel with stained glass windows and figures of Jesus hanging from the walls. Everything here feels different from the public schools I've attended since kindergarten. To my 13-year-old eyes, the most obvious difference is the clothes. Here, there are uniforms, white polo shirts with the school crest and nice ironed crisp pants, and the dress shoes. They all look the same to me, just black leather. But these boys take their shoes seriously. The only time my good friend Brad ever gets mad at me is when I forget to bring in his dress shoes that he left at my house. Coming to school without them is a social miscue that I don't fully understand. He can't exactly explain to me why the shoes are so important, but he really wants those shoes. Many kids at the school have a talent in pulling off the uniform in a way that always looks crisp. I can tell by the way they look at me that I'm doing something wrong, but I don't know what. One day of the semester, we're allowed to accent our uniforms by wearing whatever belt we want and whatever shoes we want. So I pull on my sneakers, they're off-brand Jordans, and this multicolored Rastafarian woven belt that I bought at a kiosk in Wheaton Mall. I'm pretty pleased with myself. But as I walk down the corridors with the shiny floors and the glaring overhead lights, nothing I do seems right. I pass students I know and I nod. They just look at my shoes. 
They're staring. They make faces. They smirk. Every day I'm reminded in some way or another that I'm not good enough. Not on the basketball court, not in the hallways, not in my home address. Hell, I'm only 13. But it's like they're all saying, you don't matter here. You definitely don't fit in here. For the first time in my life, I'm seeing hierarchies. And I'm seeing my place in them. I live in an unfashionable suburb, and my parents aren't politicians or socialites. I don't like the fact that I'm being ranked. It weighs me down. It distracts me. I want to resist, but I I just don't know how. This is a challenging moment for Chad. The confusion the closing off body language. There are forces at play in each of our lives that make us feel like this. Breathing. Let the spine be upright, but face relaxed. What opens up for you when you let go of the idea that you don't fit in? But all that changes in English class. My teacher's brother Martin, this bald white man in his 60s. Medium build. Not all the teachers wear the formal black robes at this school, but brother Martin is that guy. The one who goes full regalia. He's theatrical. He's jolly, but with a temper boiling just underneath if you don't respect the work. He paces the front of the room and gestures as he unpacks the stories we read. But when he speaks, I hear him. It's like something he's saying unlocks me a little bit. I feel looser here. One day in class, we read a short story unlike anything I've ever read before. It's about a boy who tries to trick his mean-spirited father into eating him. It's dark. It's funny. It's honest. It's clear. The ending surprises me, but still somehow feels inevitable. That's really tight, I think. I feel like I can write like this. Later in the week when I get detention for talking in Brother Martin's class, I'm not even sad about it or scared about what I'm going to say to my parents. I don't care because it just means I get to spend more time in my English class. There's something about it. When I'm here, the friction goes away. English class is the one place where I feel like I'm in orbit. I'm in space. I'm like a fish in water. As I put down my own thoughts and ideas, everything slows down for me. I feel things. I just get it. Writing gives me a medium to express my ideas in a way I can't really do anywhere else. My constant fight to try and rise in some hierarchy or defy it altogether, none of that matters in English class. 
I find sanctuary. I feel potent. It's here in this classroom with Brother Martin that I start to understand that I'm a writer. In my late teens, I go to this charity ball every winter. Gleaming chandeliers hang from the ceiling and dark velvety curtains drape the tall walls. The round tables have black tablecloths and complicated floral centerpieces. The hosts greet me at the front and I step into the sea of the highest class black folks in our area. The room is full of a few hundred people dressed in tuxedos and elegant gowns, their hair done. I imagine this scene looks beautiful to some. I see it a little differently. I think we're most beautiful when we're loose. I think we're beautiful when we're ourselves, when we're free. I think we're beautiful when we arrive however we want to arrive. After my private school experience, I scan all rooms in a particular way. I see who the important people are just by the way they're sitting, by the way people angle themselves to talk to them, by the way people subtly wait their turn to talk to them. And as I step to the bar, I pass through crowds of ambassadors, politicians, executives, academics, doctors. I don't really see any artists. I know I'm supposed to schmooze, so I do. The questions I encounter are some versions of where are you from, what do you do, and in so many words, how much money do you make? Where does your family vacation? I've developed a potent nature to please. I dance on the shiny wooden floor. I drink. I joke around. I say clever things. And I say things to make others feel clever. I laugh at people's jokes that I don't think are funny. I can't help it. I didn't go to Harvard, and I'm definitely not wealthy. If I don't do this, I fear, I guess, that I'll be invisible. Moving through the space, I feel unnatural. I feel such pressure. Like I'm on the set of a TV show and everybody but me has the script. I'm conflicted. On the one hand, there's this need for approval. Like I need to fight for everyone's permission to ascend this little ladder. But on the other hand, I'm inclined to dismiss the group entirely as dry, mean, or uninspired. It's another way of conquering hierarchy by pretending to drift completely away from it. But in either case, I'm defining myself in relation to someone else. It's not comfortable. It's so much friction. Throughout my whole life, I feel like I've been lied to about the benefits of the status game, the hierarchy, the ladder. In my early 20s, I get recruited to work at Google, which is deemed the best place in the world to work. But I see the bullshit in the workplace tied to my blackness that shows me a low-hanging glass ceiling. And then I see people pretending that glass ceiling isn't there. I see people hiding their motives to get more out of me for less. So I do what I do. I write about what I see. That's how I find my way to Spike Lee. So I sent him a script for a TV series about a young black genius in Silicon Valley. And he likes it. He really likes it. He likes it so much, he gives me an office in the building that houses his production company, 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks. That's how I find myself walking with him on the promenade in Fort Greene to the church. We step inside the big oak doors with the rest of the team. A cinematographer, an art director, various production folks. 
Light refracts through the church's windows, cascading red, blue, and green hues across the space. Spike moves through the building with specificity and conviction. He talks about cameras and lighting. Everyone believes in what he's saying. I believe what he's saying. To see a black person move like this is very powerful. I feel like I have untapped confidence, uncertain conviction. Watching him creates a shift in me. It makes me think anything's possible. Well, at least it makes me think I can do my thing. It forces me to ask myself the question. How do I walk not like Spike, but like myself? How do I walk like myself in every room, in every environment? I love this question. How do I walk like myself in every room? Let's rest with it a moment. Attention bright. Asking it to ourselves and noticing what responses come up. It starts when I enter my producer's apartment in Ditmas Park, near Flatbush. His name's Alex. He's an NYU kid. I mean, he's grown now. He's actually got a baby on the way. But he's domestic. He's sweet. He's like a Hufflepuff. As soon as you walk in the door, it's just joy in your face. Alex's little fuzzy dog, Nico, bounds over. The stainless steel kitchen is perfectly clean. The refrigerator's organized. All the veggies and hipster milks are in the right place. Sunlight's beaming in from a balcony. There's a giant, gorgeous painting by Alex's wife, Ariel, hanging on the wall. It's bold. It's striking. It's powerful. But it's also, in its own way, neat. It's like artists live here. There's this energy of just creativity and things clicking, things aligned all around their house. Alex says, do you need some coffee? Do you need some food? Okay, let's go. Then we go in the studio, and it's sleek and it's clean. Alex sits me on this soft, fuzzy seat. He sits at a desk. He's got a computer and two monitors. And there's a microphone in front of me. I get comfortable with it. We keep the room dark, but the monitors and the drum machines glimmer like candles. There are glow lights. So we set a hue. Today feels neon green and purple. Nico stays in the room. She has really good energy. Pure. We get the temperature right. Alex plays music into my headphones. It's like this spacious music. It's atmospheric. It feels like space. 
Space. Space is my whole thing in here. It's a bit like a sensory deprivation tank. I surrender expectations. I shed my need to please someone. It's like I'm just floating. I listen through to parts of a few different compositions, and I get loose, my body, my mind. On the sixth one, I say, I like that one. Let's mess with that one. And Alex gets me started. He's like, talk to me about what you felt on your trip to L.A. With that simple prompt, the microphone becomes a canvas for me to talk pointedly about what's going on in my life. I channel what I'm feeling in the moment. I tell a story about my Uber driver, who was telling me about how lonely he is. So I went to work on Wednesday, did my little thing, and took an Uber to an In-N-Out around the corner. And I tried to buy my Uber driver some fries. It's a story that moves me. It feels like the story of L.A., but also just feels like the story of our time. Poetry, music, I don't know how to label what we're doing. As the words pour out of my mouth, I feel like Saturn. And my ideas are the rings going around and around and around. That's what Alex says. I keep flowing from one idea to the next, around and around and around, to see where it leads me. We go like that till it's a song. A song with a verse, chorus, verse, but also with my own storytelling interstitched. As the music plays and the neon lamp glows and suddenly it's like English class again, when I felt like a fish in water. I can swim, I can backstroke, I melt. I melt down into something that's not so material anymore. Now I'm just flowing like water. And I realize what's gone. The friction. I find this feeling in the room with Alex and Nico, but you can find it anywhere for yourself. It's pure creativity and curiosity that allow me to melt the friction around me. This is what lets me walk like myself. Spike gave me the confidence to pursue it, but the seeds of creative energy formed in English class. Everything changes when you find that, when you nurture it, when you make it part of your life. Nowadays, I ask myself more, when else do I feel like this? Like myself. Sometimes I feel this way in the woods on a walk with my fiance. I love watching Juliana on the trail. Sometimes she just stops, and she closes her eyes, she tilts her head back, and she just feels the universe around her. She reminds me how to be curious, how to be still. The point isn't to just trudge along towards the next goal. And I'm learning that, slowly. And it's in these moments that I think I'm actually living. 
I think we're beautiful when we arrive however we want to arrive. That sentiment that Chad shares when faced with the starched formality of the charity ball. Oh, I love it so much. That's what his story is all about for me. Letting go of how we think we should be and just being how we be. No friction, just flow. Spike Lee energy. In his meditative story, writing the main character, storyteller Franklin Leonard discovers how change happens not in explosive moments, but slowly, through quiet reflection, sometimes after years of pleasing others. But what matters is it happens. Follow the link we've left in the show notes to spend some time with Franklin's episode. Okay, so how about this for our closing meditation together? We don't often do practices like this, but I'm inspired by Chad's invitation. He's pointing us to freedom and that which is here when there is no friction. Let's just let whatever arrives, arrive. You probably have an opinion about yourself when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. Though I'm not that good at it. My mind isn't really very quiet. Or you might think you're the bee's knees. How you think you are supposed to be. How your meditation is supposed to be. How you think your mind is supposed to be. It's all artifice, all construction. So let's drop the idea of what meditation is like for us and just do it. I'm going to invite you into a silent period, from me at least, of just over a minute. And inspired by Chad, just let the mind be the mind. Let your awareness know things. No need for hierarchy. No judgment. Just your mind wearing whatever it wants to. Okay, see you in a bit. Hey, I'm back. How was that? What did you notice? 
Was there resistance? Was there flow? Were there any curses about my dropping the guide ropes and leaving you to swim in the deep end of silence? Interesting, isn't it? When we can know the mind, the heart, without friction, it's a beautiful thing indeed. The thing is, it's always there, always accessible. We just have to turn to it. Surrender expectations and turn to the space. It took me a long time to understand this, despite hearing it a lot. So don't worry if this all sounds like some kind of Zen nonsense. That's sort of because it is. But that doesn't make it any less true. Thank you, Chad. I'm so excited for all the creative work that you'll continue to bring into the world. And thank you. I wish you a friction-free week until we next meet. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how Meditative Story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and June Cohen. Jay Punjabi is our supervising producer. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams, Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Our scriptwriters are Peter Keckley, Florence Williams and Hannah Brencher. Technical support from Robin Wise. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tarter, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sammy Oputa, Leah Serametis, Colin Howarth, Chineme Ezequena, Charlie Menezes and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilika, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode. 